0: Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change The World. I'm Steve Tibbett and my guest is Clive Stafford-Smith who is a civil rights lawyer who specialises in working against the death penalty in the US. He worked to overturn death sentences for convicts and helped found the not-for-profit Louisiana Capital Assistance Centre in New Orleans. He also founded a UK charity, Reprieve, which provides legal and invest- investigative support to some of the world's most vulnerable people such as those facing execution and those victimised by states' abusive counter-terrorism policies uh, such as rendition, torture and extrajudicial imprisonment and extrajudicial killing. In total, Clive has represented over 300 prisoners facing the death penalty in the southern United States and has a 98% success rate. But he is perhaps best known at least in the UK for defending and working to secure the release of prisoners in Guantanamo Bay which is the campaign uh, I am talking to him about today. Uh, Since the prison camp opened in 2002 by George Bush Jr. uh, almost 800 men have passed through its cells In addition to unlawful detention, many were subject to torture and other brutal treatment. Today, about 40 men remain, nearly all held without charge or trial. Dozens of these detainees have already been cleared for release by the US military. When Guantanamo Bay was set up, um, it was set up to hold suspected terrorists beyond the reach of the courts. Um, So Clive joined with two other. Lawyers, and initially sued for access to the detainees, um, and so it was several years before the Supreme Court even allowed lawyers into the prison camp. But Clive has helped secure uh, the release of sixty-nine prisoners from Guantanamo Bay, and many more. You know that he's had an influence on beyond that. You would say, um, and that includes every British prisoner, and he still acts for for fifteen. Prisoners there. More recently, he started looking into other secret detention sites, including the Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan and the British island of Diego Garcia. Cliver has received uh, many honours and awards, uh, too numerous to mention here, but he was ranked number six in the 2009 Times list of Britain's most powerful lawyers. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree he's uh, an engaging subject for the podcast. So here. He is okay. I'm with uh, Clive Stafford Smith, and we're here at the offices of Reprieve. Uh, we're talking about the campaign to close Guantanamo Bay, or rather, legal secret prison and rendition centres, and uh, Clive's um, long history of work on that. And Clive, if I could just ask you to start with, could you just say about how you first got involved with the issue, what was the background?
1: Well, I was doing death penalty work in the Deep South in Louisiana when 9-11 happened, um, and the immediate response to that in America was this dreadful notion that we were going to set up a prison in Cuba. And, you know, one of the little-known things is that the U.S. advocated for the death penalty for everyone, so all these bearded Muslims who were being brought to Cuba were going to face the death penalty. And so, to me, it was just a natural extension of what I was already doing, um, because, When you think about how the American government hides what they're doing in the death penalty, you know, take Mississippi, for example. They have death row in Parchman, Mississippi, which is in the middle of nowhere, way up in the Delta, far away from the families, far away from any lawyers. They give no right to funded legal counsel, so you're meant to represent yourself. Uh, And it's all sort of meant to be out of sight, out of mind, because once they've sentenced someone to death, you know, they don't want anyone pointing to the fact that the emperor wears no clothes. When you look at Cuba and Guantanamo Bay, it was that, except it was exponentially worse, that instead of parchment Mississippi, they put it in Cuba. Instead of you know, not giving someone a state-funded lawyer, they wouldn't let anyone down there at all. Instead of putting you out a you know, long way from your family, they put you 12,000 miles from your family and mm. wouldn't let your family talk to you. And so, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was exactly the same issue and we just needed to put a stop to it.
0: Yeah. So, in terms of who's the we in that and how did you come to represent <laughs> British... Well,
1: we uh, is a bit of an overstatement because I thought this was a no-brainer and that all my death penalty buddies would want to leap into it. And I start calling them around when, when Bush first announces Guantanamo and I wanted to round up some people to sue him with me. And I was really taken aback, and I think I was naive at the emotional response of America after 9-11. You know, I am American, as well as British, and you have to remember the U.S. has only been invaded territorially basically three times, you know, in, uh, when the British burned the White House in 1812, and when mm. the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and then in 9-11. So they just aren't used to what, unfortunately, has happened in Europe a lot, and my death penalty friends wanted none of it at the time, except for just Joe Margulis, who is a capital lawyer out of Texas, mm. and then Michael Ratner from CCR. We were the only three in the end that uh, that that we could get together and, and sue to try and open it up.
0: And did you uh, w- did you say it as a sort of um, a piece of um, strategic litigation or pieces of strategic litigation, which would lead to bigger change. Or did you? When did you start to see it as, a, if you like, a campaign, a wider campaign with other organisations involved? Well, to me, what it's
1: all about is actually about hatred and power, uh, and that's what it's always been about for me. I mean, when you know, I sort of learnt from my mother mm. um, that what you should do is look around the world at the people who have been hated, and then get between them and the people doing the hatred, and they're always, always wrong. Um, And so, you know, there's nothing like the distillation of hatred when the government wants to ceremonially execute someone. And the same was going on in Cuba. And, you know, I saw it as just a way that President Bush was lying to the American people, vilifying these 780 people in Guantanamo, um, with the pretense that he was doing something to make the world a safer place, whereas, in fact, he was mortgaging America's principles right there. So, you know, that was what it was about to me, and I didn't really think twice about it, um, but then it became a much more of a strategic campaign after that, when we stopped to start thinking about it.
0: Did, did you, um, uh, as I understand it at the beginning, there was a sort of first aim of getting access to... the prisoners is that right at first you couldn't get access well that took
1: two and a half years right um so we sued on february the 19th 2002 and we lost in the district court and we lost in the court of appeals and then it went to the u.s supreme court and yeah the first thing was to get access Mm. because without being able to talk to these people and you have to remember that even the names of the prisoners in guantanamo was classified So we didn't get a list of all the prisoners from the government until 2006. So, you know, really what we were doing, and I think this was best summed up by Joe Margulis, I wish I could say, I thought of this. But what Joe said is that the secrecy is the only thing that allows the government to lie to the American people about what they're doing. Our job is to open it up to public inspection, and if we open it up and they see what's really happening, they'll close it down because it will be such nonsense. And that was Joe's encapsulation of our strategy, and I think it was a very valid one.
0: Did did you um, sort of ever go sort of how did you strategize? Did you ever formally strategize about what you were what you were doing and what you were going to do, and sit down in a room with? those other lawyers and other how how did you sort of plan out and how far ahead did you plan out what you were going to do? Well
1: in the early days it wasn't much of a team you know there were three of us and then we were joined by Sherman and Sterling who were hired by um, Mm -hmm. Al Aloda who was one of the Kuwaiti prisoners so we had a little more resources going on and what we did was we basically divided it up according to what each of us was most suited to do so Joe has always, he's a professor, you know, he's always been into the law. So he took the lead on that. Um, CCR was courageous for an NGO because I was working with a death penalty NGO that I'd set up at the time. And we kept these things very distinct because this was really hated work. I mean, I Mm. got more death threats over Guantanamo than I'd had on any death penalty case. So um, CCR had some resources, and they built the coalition of lawyers, because we needed more lawyers for the prisoners. And then my job was to find the people who would be our the human faith. So I was traveling around meeting the families, because we couldn't get anything from the prisoners to say they wanted lawyers or say what happened to them. So I would go to Yemen and to Bahrain and to all sorts of countries and meet with family members who had by then got some Red Cross uh, messages. Mm. And also some prisoners started coming out, and the information we were able to get from the prisoners Mm. who had been released was incredibly important to begin to paint a picture of what was going on in
0: there. Could you say a bit about how you sort of sustained, over those many years, um, your your energy, enthusiasm, and, and, you know, kept going in, in the face of what you describe in, in, in terms of the opposition and the difficulties, two and a half years to, even to, to get to see the, the, the prisoners? Well,
1: it wasn't difficult. I mean, to me, this was one of the great moral issues of our time. And, um, you know, to begin with, it was very hostile. And it must be said that it was very hostile even in a place like Britain. But the U.S. government made their first or their next really big mistake in April 2003 when they charged a bunch of people, six people in the military commissions. And to begin with, we were focused on the military commissions because we were getting beaten up in habeas trying to get access to the prisoners. So the one way we could get to the prisoners was by becoming uh, part of the military lawyer team and so Joe and I had befriended some very fine military lawyers, and that was our focus. And then six people were charged, and those six people included um, Mosim Beg, who was one of the British people, and and Abazi, who was another of the Brits. And uh, that was a huge mistake on the Americans' part, and they also charged David Hicks. And the reason they did that... I think, was because they had English-speaking people who they were going to coerce into pleading guilty and then publicize it around the world. But actually, the British, who up till that point had not been sympathetic with us at all, suddenly got upset and said, mm, it's all right, you're beating up on foreigners, but you can't do it to our boys. So suddenly we had an opportunity, and for the next year or two, we were able to win more cases about Guantanamo in Britain than we did in America. Uh, And we brought a case here where Lord Justice Stain said that there was a kangaroo court in Guantanamo and so forth. And, you know, this is a big part of what our plan was, um, which was basically to play countries off against each other. It's a fact that the British national sport is not soccer. It's bashing America. And it's a sport that is very entertaining when Donald Trump is president or George Bush. Mm. And, you know, there's a level of hypocrisy to that in the sense that we have Belmarsh, which is almost as bad as Guantanamo, but they, uh, the British were really up in arms about what was happening to their boys in Guantanamo, and that was a big breakthrough for us, because suddenly we had some people on our side who were pressing the Americans to behave a bit better.
0: Yeah. Do you think that, that would have been possible... Is that possible in the current climate with the tensions... Between the British
1: and American government, and oh yeah, oh totally. <laughs> I mean, look, it's it's happening, and in a way, it's happening the other way around right now because there is Guantanamo on the Euphrates, which is down in the Kurdish part of Syria. I've been there many times, uh, five times, and um, and there, the Americans are the good guys, right? The Americans are actually, well, not always. They've done Trump has done some mad things, but the American forces. Have been really good about getting their prisoners out and about saying that the West should get all their prisoners out. The British are the bad guys there. So paradoxically, we've been playing it the other way since then, um, where we've had the Americans lecturing the British about how bad they are.
0: And just uh, just uh, thinking about um, sort of the the world of NGO campaigning or, or or charity, civil society. Um, and the, the question asked you about the long term. Do you feel, and obviously your reprieve and reprieve have got a good reputation for sticking with issues, but do you feel sometimes that people move on and you know, you're left, th- those people who left caring about these issues, whereas, the, I don't know, your, the amnesties and the, the other the human rights watches have moved on to their next big issue? Do you ever feel that? I, I'm
1: very loath to criticise NGOs, frankly, as if you want to criticise someone, you criticise the Tory party, but, uh, or the Republicans. So I'm not going to say that what Amnesty or Human Rights Watch does is bad in any way, not at all. The difference is this. I represent people. These are individuals. And I think in the world of campaigning, that is both... You know, it's what I do, but importantly, it's what persuades people. I mean, I have to quote Joseph Stalin here, that wise man from Russia. I hope you can catch a touch of irony there, but Joseph Stalin said that if you kill uh, a million people, it's just a statistic, whereas if you kill one person, it's murder. And, you know, while I don't approve, obviously, of old Joe, it's true that if you take a campaign where you just have a nameless number of people, you get nowhere. But if you have one individual who you can humanize, you get everywhere. And that's the focus of certainly what I would want to do uh, in terms of taking that one person who's best able to represent the issue for a whole lot of people. And if you do that, you can't dump him, right? I mean, you can't say, all right, I'm a bit bored of this. Uh, you know, I've represented Chris Maharaj since 1993, and uh, I had no grey hair back then. And you know, he's an innocent guy who was on death row. I can't dump him. So yeah, those things can be a bit frustrating. Uh, and it's frustrating that I think many people have forgotten that Guantanamo exists. Um, but that's our job to keep uh, keep going. Where does the where does the money come from? Well, it's all charitable funding so it's generous people who give us money to do this and that you know comes with i think a duty what i refer to as my mother-in-law's rule which is that we have to spend what is effectively the prisoner's money you know wisely capital punishment for example means that those without the capital get the punishment so we have to represent a bunch of poor people who have no money you know, I've only ever had one attorney's fee in my entire life. And that was when a friend of mine paid me two six-packs of beer to get her out of a traffic ticket. And I'm not interested in representing rich people. I'm interested in representing the powerless people who can't afford it.
0: We're just going to stop there for, for, uh, for a short break.
1: For some great music. If it was my choice, it would be really bad music from ABBA.
0: I don't think we can, we can accommodate that. Uh... Clive Stafford-Smith, and I wanted to ask you, Clive, what would you describe, how would you describe the successes so far that you've had on Guantanamo, and and how far is there still to go?
1: Well, when you look at it, there were 780 people there originally, now there are 40, so that means we've got, you know, over 90% of the people out, and that's pretty good, because, you know, this is a, a case that we brought against the most powerful person on earth. And, you know, he lost three times in the U.S. Supreme Court, which was a conservative place, and has, you know, overall, I think, lost the world battle on whether Guantanamo is a great idea. That said, there are 40 people left, and we need to get them justice too.
0: So, yeah, and presumably you talk about Obama and his, his, you know, pledge to close Guantanamo, and you must have thought, back then wow that's going to happen and this is going to be great and the president's committed to that and then it didn't happen can you say a bit about because i'm always a bit confused about why actually it didn't happen
1: it's really sad actually i mean obama i voted for him but he did some dreadful things when he was in office in terms of human rights and one was his first promise to close guantanamo and he didn't do it and the reason he didn't do it was He wanted to have a bunch of committee meetings on whether to close it. The Republicans weren't interested in that. They were interested in bashing him and scaring the American people. And so when he took office, we'd been going at George Bush for several years. And by then, 65% of Americans thought we should close Guantanamo. By the time Obama got through, because he didn't fight his corner, 60% of Americans thought that Guantanamo should stay open. So that was just a real lack of leadership. And what was particularly sad is, for example, the case of Abdul Latif Nasser, who's one of the people that I still represent down there. He's been cleared for release for three years, and Obama just failed to send him home in time. And so poor old Abdul Latif is sitting there watching the American election in November uh, and... Hillary Clinton loses and Trump wins, and Trump has said no one's going to leave, and Abdul Latif's still there, even though the you know it's it's Hotel California if you want to play music, um, where you can check in but you can't check out, and it's just awful that, and I think it's very sad that Obama failed to do what was basically his moral duty.
0: Yeah. So after that period, a long period of time, um, now with Trump. Did, it, Do you feel that that's another retrograde step? He seems quite keen, as you said, on Guantanamo. Well, Trump's an idiot.
1: And, you know, actually it's much, much better having Trump in the White House than Obama in
0: many ways. Uh,
1: You know, I wish that wasn't so. But Trump plays on fear and hatred. And actually it's much easier for us to attack him. And there are many more people who hate him than who would ever believe that dear old Barack Obama would do anything bad. So, you know, now, while it's tough, and it's really tough on those individual prisoners, it's actually quite easy to get people upset about Guantanamo again, because it's Donald Trump doing it.
0: Were you able to get sort of unlikely people speaking out against it? Were you able to get ex-military people? Or... Well, there's
1: all sorts of things. I mean, I think one principle of all campaigning is lefty people basically are vastly oversincere and boring and we've got to avoid that at all costs. And there are various ways to do that. One is to take the mickey out of them. I mean, you know, George Bush and Donald Trump don't mind if you and I hate them, because that reinforces their sense of self. But if we laugh at them, they hate it. So, you know, everything in Guantanamo is an opportunity. One time they were threatening to arrest me and send me to prison for 40 years. Or, if you'll believe it allegedly smuggling in Under Armour underpants and speedo swimming trunks well you know it is true that wearing speedo sw- swimming trunks is a criminal offense and you should be locked up for it but you know i'm facing that and that's either something that's going to intimidate or it's something where you just make them look really stupid i mean obviously i didn't do it um so i wrote them a letter saying first look there's only one place they can swim in their speedo swimming trunks and that's in the toilet so all you've got to do is post a little notice over the toilet that says we don't piss in your swimming pool so please don't swim in our toilet and that should solve the problem but then I got um, I got Joe Corey a vagin provocateur to come up with some nice slinky orange underwear which had little shackles on the front and said fair trial my ass" across the back Uh, And they did a fashion show. His mum is Vivian Westwood and Vivian did a fashion show with them. And then we sent a bunch of copies of this to uh, Donald Rumsfeld saying, obviously, you're a bit short of knickers in Guantanamo. And we just made them look really stupid in the media. And I think what that does is it delegitimizes further the whole concept of Guantanamo, but it also doesn't take them too seriously.
0: So what's next in terms of your your aims uh, obviously this remains the aim to close Guantanamo it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon maybe you could say differently but what's your next well one aim. thing I
1: tell to all my clients who are suffering miserably in Guantanamo is look if for example Ahmed Roubani had remained in Karachi he would have been a taxi driver and he would have worked really hard and he'd have lived a really boring life and you know ultimately wouldn't have achieved anything much for the world he's in Guantanamo, he can do two things. He can sit there and be miserable, or he can work with me and really change the world and become quite famous. And, you know, that's a promise I make to my clients, is to make him famous. So just in the last few days, the the, the, the film, the report has come out um, with Adam Driver, and it's about this, the Senate torture report. And this is a golden opportunity for Ahmed to talk about it because he's in the Senate report. And he was mistaken for a guy called Hassan Ghul when the Pakistanis sold him for a bounty to the Americans. And he says, wait a minute, no, I'm a taxi driver from Karachi. And they say, oh, we don't believe you. So they took him and tortured him for 540 days in a dark prison. And then they sent him to Guantanamo. What he didn't know until we got the, the report um, was that actually the CIA figured out he probably wasn't Hassan Gul the day after they detained him then in the footnotes at the end it says he was tortured without authorization he was one of the very small minority of people where they didn't authorize it I don't know which is worse frankly Mm. but then in the report it says that at some point the Americans captured Hassan Gol and they brought him to uh, to the dark prison where Ahmed was and they let him go because he was cooperating allegedly he spent two days in the dark prison uh, and then later on, he was let go, went back to Pakistan, carried on his wicked ways, and was killed in a drone strike in 2012. Now, we didn't know that till all of this came out. But the report as a film gives us a wonderful opportunity to put that story out there, which does two things. One is it reminds people about the plight of someone in Ahmed's situation. And two is it can really remind people about how ridiculous and immoral this torture business is. And hopefully, in the longer term, uh, change the rules so that we can prevent this from happening in the future.
0: And, and you, you said when we spoke earlier that there are there are all sorts of centres and, and rendition centres and prisons around the world that are being run by various governments, presumably, but. Uh, Is that that something that's spreading or getting
1: worse? Well, one of the problems when America misbehaves, the reason I've always focused on primarily America and to a lesser extent Britain, is if we do bad things like the death penalty or assassination or torture, then that just encourages the people who are already mad. I mean, there's a reason why Putin's going around the world assassinating people in Salisbury and on the streets of London, Uh, You know, he's a not very good person in the first place, but he now has a legal justification for it because the Americans say it's okay, they're doing it too. And that was something Barack Obama introduced to his eternal shame. So, you know, what we do, it's going to be very hard to persuade the world, for example, to give up the death penalty for as long as America has it. So we need to stop the U.S. doing it first, and, you know, we will.
0: Would you describe what you... Do or have done on Guantanamo strategic litigation have you, do you think that you, you talked earlier about you know campaigning on one person or using one person as a sort of way in to speak to the public but do you, do you feel like what you 're doing is has also a strategic aim of something bigger
1: it 's a hugely strategic thing, whether i 'd call it strategic litigation no i wouldn't because that 's too narrow. It's it's the strategic use of power, and the power of the law is one thing. And it is strategic. And, you know, one of the great um, um, thinkers, shall we say, of the entire process, in my mind, is Bru Rabbit. And I don't know if you remember Bru Rabbit, mm-hmm, but Brer Rabbit was all about, please don't throw me in that bra patch, um, because then Brer Fox would throw him straight in the bra mm-hmm. patch, and that's where he wanted to go. That's a thing that we end up doing to the governments all the time because the government is the big fox who's kind of stupid and who goes along with that so let's take the issue of classification the problem since 9/11 torture yes that's awful various things are awful i think the very worst thing is secrecy because what we're doing is we're using national security to cover up um the the awful things we're doing and so you know the essence of that again is what joe said which is that you know if we open it up they'll close it down and so for example i was sitting in the secret facility everything our clients say to us is classified and you're sitting there and i was with joe and we were typing up our notes and i typed up 30 pages of how Mozambique had been tortured and they classified everything and they said you know you can't speak about that in public because that's Methods and means of interrogation. And I said, wait a minute, you know, you murdered two people. Surely that's not methods and means of interrogation. So, anyway, it's a bit frustrating to begin with, but then you realize this is a great opportunity because what we're trying to do, it's not in the courts, it's in the court of public opinion, is show the world what they're doing. So, I wrote a letter to then it was Tony Blair saying, Dear Tony. And at the top it said, In Ray, torture of British citizens. And then I detailed the two pages, all the torture, and at the bottom it said, If anything's been taken out of this, it's because your friends, the Americans don't want you to know that they're torturing our people. Love, Clive. And so, of course, they censored it all, but then we get out this blackened document that only has the top line and the bottom line in And then we put it on the front page of the Times. And people's imagination is way more powerful even than the reality of what we were doing. So this caused a monstrous uproar. And then, of course, the Americans had to surrender and let the 30 pages out anyhow. So you end up getting much more publicity Mm -hmm. for the awful things they're doing because they're fighting you. And you always want them to fight. If they're sensible and they just surrender, then the story lasts for 10 minutes. But if they fight you, it goes on forever. So we want
0: conflict always. So, so using the courts I mean it sounds like if you if you want a lawyer you 'd probably be the campaigner anyway um, well it 's all about
1: I mean, it 's not just law so it's I, I, I grew up as a wannabe writer. I was going to inflict right. all sorts of books on the world, which I am steadily doing and i 'm glad to say mm. that my office uses my books to prop up the computer screens of their computers um, so i the power of the written word is immense mm-hmm. and that's all the same thing isn't it we're trying to persuade the jury out there who's the population
0: but do you do you feel that the um, that sometimes you know that the the courts are a bit of a I, I'm just trying to think you know when you when you're doing your work how important are the different pieces of the power play if you like I mean you mentioned the media so for instance how important would you put media coverage in, in the sort of
1: Well, it depends what you're trying to do. So, you know, it totally depends on the case and the facts. But generally, as generally speaking, judges are very conservative and they think the law is what matters, and that is wrong. The law is a tool, it's an important tool, but it's only one tool. Um, And ultimately, what we're trying to do is change the way people behave to be something that's kinder and more decent. So, yeah, we can change the laws, and that's great. And if we hadn't got a court ruling to get into Guantanamo, it would have been a much harder battle. So that was important. But at the same time, of the first 500 prisoners we got out of Guantanamo, the courts ordered the release of zero. And the ones we got out were because we released the stories. We got out the stories legally of all these people showing what a total farce it was. And that's what embarrassed the government into letting people go. So you know the courts have only released, oh, you know, probably a total of less than fifteen people right. in the last however many years, and yet we've got seven hundred and forty out. So the courts play only a minor role, really.
0: Yeah, and and in that, um, I mean, in that sort of calculation, are you are you thinking that? The the media is the most important tool, or is it? Uh, you know, is it is it really just one tool in, in a whole set of different tools that you might? Well, think the of media them?
1: is a tool, and you have to think about how you get the media interested. I don't mean to insult uh, everyone's colleagues in the media by saying that it's quite hard to get their attention sometimes on important issues. And so on those, it's really important in a way to have celebrities. Yeah, I'll tell you a little story about how I've been humbled. I went to Pakistan on the assassination program one time with uh, Jemima Khan, who's incredibly famous in Pakistan, and she was married to Imran Khan years ago. Yeah. And we did a press conference together where we said basically the same things. And the, the dear people in my office can now push a button and say how many people quoted who and they pointed out to me that I think I was quoted by 2.7% of the Pakistan media Jemima was quoted by 74% of them and you know that's great and you know when most deaf Yasin Bey allowed us to force feed him on camera you know 10 million people watched that in the first few days Uh, and those things are so powerful And, and I'm sometimes sad that in our celebrity culture some celebrities think that they shouldn't use that. They should. They're really important and it's incredibly helpful.
0: Clive Stafford-Smith, thank you so much for your time today. You're most welcome. (laughs)